Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, hey, Kristen. Hello, Caroline. <laughs> and hello, unladies out there. Welcome to another edition of Best of Unladylike. We're bringing y'all brand new episodes starting on March 30th. But in the meantime, we are dipping into the archives to revisit some of our and your favorite episodes. Favorite episodes that also feel especially timely right now, which is why we're hitting replay on episode 45, How to Free the 90s Bitch. Because look, it's no secret that pop culture has treated women terribly, but there has been so much focus, especially lately, on Britney Spears. And this has gotten us thinking a lot about how the 90s really set the stage for the kind of treatment that Britney got in the late 90s and early 2000s as she approached her quote unquote infamous breakdown. Yeah, I mean, it's a pattern we see again and again where we build women up, vilify them, and tear them down. I mean, just look at what happened in the 90s with women like Monica Lewinsky, Anita Hill, Hillary Clinton. And we've really been dissecting this pattern again now, like, thanks to Britney Spears and that documentary that came out. Like, oh, my gosh, wow, we really do treat women unfairly. Well, let's listen back to this case study of how all of this happened in the 90s with our episode, How to Free the 90s Bitch. I mean, we saw, you know, Sally Ride go to space and we saw Geraldine Ferraro secure the vice presidential nomination on a major political party ticket. Um, You know, Toni Morrison and Alice Walker won Pulitzer Prizes for women-centered fiction, and it just felt like women were ascending. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And Caroline, you and I have a lot in common with today's guest, Allison Yarrow. We all grew up in the South in the 90s with all of its girl power glitz and butterfly clips. But we were also kind of sheltered from feminism and that sense of rising gender equality with, you know, like women going to space and making waves in politics, arts, culture. Yeah, like I did not know until talking to Allison that the 90s were supposed to be the so-called decade of women. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it either. But a few years ago, when Allison started taking a closer look at what was happening for women while we were girls— What really went down during that decade of women stunned her. 
I got really excited to say, like, oh, look at all of these major news stories that were really about women. And then the closer I started to look at all these stories, I realized that the major stories of the 90s, yes, they were about women, but they were about making women into bitches, almost every last one of them. And that was shocking. Allison deep dives into that shocking discovery in her book, 90s Bitch, Media, Culture, and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality. And Allison's book really couldn't come at a more relevant time, considering, Caroline, we are barreling towards 2020 like it's 1999. From chokers, clueless fashion and cassette tapes at Urban Outfitters to women like Anita Hill, Monica Lewinsky, and Lorena Bobbitt back in cultural conversations, like It's all about the 90s these days. Yeah. So today, Allison's taking us on a kind of feminist 90s nostalgia trip to reckon with that recent history and the women who made it. All to find out, why did the supposed decade of women become all about the bitches? And what can 90s bitchification teach us about American women today? What is the most unladylike thing about you, Um, Well, I mean, slapping somebody in the face is pretty unladylike. (laughs) (laughs) So what was so offensive that Allison slapped somebody? Well, the B word. That's what. The first time someone called me a bitch, I slapped her in the face. And (laughs) I was a teenager. I was a young teenager. And, you know, I think we were at a party where people were drinking and— I just, I had such a reaction to that word. I knew that it was, like, the worst word that you could call a woman. And I just reared back and slapped her in the face. And, you know, I was so ashamed. I felt like I had violated the code of femininity by resorting to violence. I I didn't realize this at the time, but Looking back on that experience, it was clear to me that I had really internalized perfect girl narratives and 90s bitchification. What Allison means by 90s bitchification is the way the media of the day twisted practically every headlining woman into some kind of bitch. And to understand all this, we've got to look back at what the decade was telling and selling both women and girls. Yeah, because they were very different messages. For girls, it was all about, like, Lisa Frank stickers, maybe watching the craft at sleepovers, or playing a little game called Girl Talk. is more sophisticated. What kind of girl talk girl are you? The game of truth or dare. <laughs> Call a guy and tell him something gross. Never. I'll take a zit sticker. Okay, so that commercial was from 1995. And by the end of the 90s, girl talk had been taken over by girl power. Or do you mean girl power? What kind of kid were you in the 90s? And by that I mean, which Spice Girl were you? Which Spice Girl? Oh, that's so good. I wanted to be Baby Spice, but I absolutely was not Baby Spice. Um, I read teen magazines like Teen and Seventeen and YM. Uh, I wasn't cool enough to read Sassy. It hadn't reached me in Macon, Georgia. But, um, you know, I braided friendship bracelets and, like, hoarded Victoria's Secret catalogs and really was seduced by the myth of the perfect girl that was peddled everywhere in the 90s. Did you have American Girl dolls? 
I had Samantha. Samantha. I had Samantha. Did you have Samantha? Sorry. Sorry. She was perfect, right? I I was going to ask how how you would describe that perfect 90s girl, maybe beyond dollhouses. The perfect 90s girl was thin. She was blonde. She was white. She didn't have any flaws. And so that that kind of girl was really peddled in magazines. She was who you saw wearing the clothes in the Delia's catalogs Mm -hmm. and in the magazines. And she really was someone who seemed to achieve perfection without any work. Allison, I was just going to ask you if the perfect girl was Adelia's Same. model. Same. Because I, I will I distinctly remember my introduction to the concept of a thigh gap coming through the Delia's swimsuit issue and seeing all of those thin girls and looking at my own body and thinking, oh no, <laughs> one of these is not like the other. <laughs> yeah, that really resonates with me too. They really were very thin. And, you know, those models and models in most of the teen magazines we grew up reading, they didn't have bodies that were diverse. They didn't have roles. They didn't have thigh gaps. And Real women have those bodies. In other words, girl power promised that we could be anything we dreamed of. But what that perfect girl ideal looked like in the media was very white, thin, economically advantaged. And the perfect woman ideal looked pretty much the same, except nobody was encouraging, like, woman power. So your book is called 90s Bitch. What does bitchiness have to do with 90s women in particular? It's so funny when I am introduced to people, when I when I talk to people about this book and people look at the title, immediately they say, oh, I'm a 90s bitch. Or sometimes men will say, oh, is that about my ex-wife? Oh, and no. So <laughs> 90s bitch, the bitch part of it is not actually a reclamation of the term. The history of the word really reduces women to their sexual function, to dogs in heat begging for men. In the 90s, the word bitch was pretty universally used to malign, objectify, and dismiss women. And if it wasn't the word bitch, it was absolutely the suggestion of the word bitch. It was very clear. Or, as Allison writes in her book, quote, Stories of notable women from the 90s almost invariably suggest they were sluts, whores, trash, prudes, erotomaniacs, sycophants, idiots, frauds, emasculators, nutcrackers, dykes, and succubi. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's that old saying? Uh, a bitch by any other name? So women during the 90s, they were often referred to as bitches for taking up space, for being people that were reported on. That was enough to render pretty much any woman a bitch. The only difference between them was what kind. All right, Caroline. So there are a few major types of 90s bitches that Allison's going to introduce to us. Because bitchification was a real shapeshifter. It it was pretty impossible to escape if you so much as stepped a pinky toe out of your ladylike lane. Yeah, I mean, according to Allison, women could get slammed as bad moms, damaged goods, catfighters, double-bind bitches, and the villain-slash-victim. So our first category, the bad mom. Which Allison says is basically the woman who's trying to have it all by any means necessary. 
someone who is perceived to like saunter off to um, a high-powered job while leaving it to, you know, domestic workers or other women to do the work of motherhood, of raising their kids. That's sort of the bad mom bitch. An important piece of context here is that the 90s was when the number of working women peaked. In 1999, 60% of American women were working. And believe it or not, that number has never been as high since. But the higher up the ambition ladder moms climbed, the more sexist scrutiny awaited them. Allison's case in point, lawyer Zoe Baird. She was nominated for uh, the president's cabinet. She would have been the first woman attorney general had she not been felled by nanny gate. So... She was nominated, and then it was revealed that she had uh, paid child care off the book. She hadn't paid taxes on her child care. All right, Zoe Baird is in big trouble. She's been Right-wing radio pundit Rush Limbaugh shared his hot take in 1993. She uh, hired some illegal aliens to take care of her kids. Now, she only makes $660,000. <laughs> uh, as Cokie Roberts of ABC said, she had the best line. With that kind of money, she could hire Mary Poppins. What is she out there hiring? What was really striking was that no other cabinet member or nominee had been asked about their child care decisions at all. Uh, None of the men. And then we come to find out later that one of the men in the president's cabinet had actually also paid um, a domestic worker off the books, had not paid taxes, just like Zoe Baird did. But he was able to keep his position. And she wasn't nominated at all. Next up, we've got the damaged goods bitch. These are women who start out as innocent it girls and wind up tarnished by overt sexualization, drugs, or mental illness. Think Princess Diana. She not only committed the ultimate royal sin of divorce, but in 1995, she went public about her experiences with eating disorders, depression, and self-harm during her marriage. And that kind of openness might be appreciated on social media today. But with that interview, Princess Di was recast as this conniving blonde bombshell. Less royal, but no less my fave. There's damaged goods bitch Fiona Apple. She was, you know, someone who, um, because of her controversial music video in which she's kind of writhing around on the carpet, not wearing a lot of clothes. There were accusations in the music press that she was, um, you know, bratty and entitled, and she was making child pornography because she was barely dressed. Here's Fiona being interviewed on MTV in 1999. What did people think of you? It depends on where they were looking. If they were going to a lot of shows and not really reading a lot, then they probably had a lot uh, truer view of me. What was the wrong-headed view of you in your mind? That I'm just like a sad brat with no sense of humor, you know? What she was actually doing is she wasn't being sexual. She wasn't playing to the camera for the male gaze. She was shaming the male gaze with this video. She was saying, how dare you look at me? When I'm like this, you know, she had been very forthcoming in the press with her own experience with eating disorders. She, you know, told a music journalist about being raped. Self-harm and eating disorders really came into mainstream consciousness in the 90s as sort of the primary afflictions of that perfect girl Delia's model ideal. 
But sometimes the violence was more public. Which brings us to the next bitch category, the catfight. So a duo who get caught up in fighting each other instead of, you know, the patriarchy. And the most iconic catfighters of the 90s were none other than Olympic ice skating teammates turned enemies, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. And, you know, the story of Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan is that they were both figure skaters pursuing, you know, spots on the Olympic team. And uh, Tanya Harding was accused of hitting Nancy Kerrigan with a club and running away. I, I can't believe it. I mean, why does someone want to discredit me? I mean, I... Were you shocked it's, it's when you read some of these things? It's ludicrous. It's totally ludicrous. But it wasn't. Her husband, Jeff Galuli, and bodyguard, Sean Eckert, were involved, and she knew it. She admitted it just days later. I had no prior knowledge of the planned assault on Nancy Kerrigan. When I returned to that story, I had remembered that Tanya Harding actually hit Nancy Kerrigan, which is not what happened at all. But I had remembered it as Tanya hitting Nancy. And I think that's because the narrative around them in the 90s really just desired the cat fight. Nancy Kerrigan was also bitchified, too, because when she won the silver medal in the Olympic Games that year— um, she was accused of losing gold. You could tell she was visibly bummed out to win that silver right. as well. Yeah, and she was also caught on a hot mic at Disney World um, saying, this is so dumb, this is so stupid, when she was in a parade. During a parade, Kerrigan complained to Mickey Mouse, it's so corny, so dumb, I hate it. Do we have an attitude problem here? So there was actually, like, if you can believe this, there was actually a column in the Washington Post. The headline was... Is Nancy a bitch? Question mark. <laughs> well, I should find that because my mom's name is Nancy. <laughs> okay, so that's bad moms, damaged goods, and cat fights. What's next? The double bind bitch. So in 1995, researcher Kathleen Hall Jamison coined this term, double bind, to describe the patriarchal catch-22 of feminine gender roles and ambition. Yeah, so think Janet Reno, Marsha Clark, like any woman reaching for masculine-coded power had better toe a feminine line or risk becoming the ultimate double bind bitch. Well, Hillary Clinton's original sins were really in the 90s. I think the way that we have come to think of Hillary Clinton dates back to two things. And it's really her sitting next to her husband in 1992 um, after the Super Bowl in a 60 Minutes interview defending against charges of infidelity. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him and I honor what he's been. Hillary Clinton made this Tammy Wynette comment, and people really didn't like it. They didn't like the idea that she wouldn't be sitting next to her man like Tammy Wynette. And then just a few weeks later, she made that infamous cookies comment. A reporter asked her about uh, being a professional lawyer. I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but I, what I decided to do was to fulfill my profession, which I entered before my husband was in public life. And that became the soundbite. There was much more that she said, uh, but that little snippet became the soundbite. 
And people were angry that she would shirk her domestic responsibilities in pursuit of a job. Her assertiveness makes some voters uncomfortable. I feel that she's the power behind the throne. I think she's a very aggressive woman and she's overly ambitious. Caroline, I was totally aware of all the Hillary hate as as a kid, but of course I wasn't aware of all the sexism behind it. Oh, totally. It was the same in my house, Kristen. And y'all, when we come back, we've got one more bitch category to tell you about. And it includes many of your 90s faves. Tonight. You have been described as a, a bimbo, a stalker, a seductress. Barbara Walters with Monica Lewinsky, a woman guaranteed a place in history. Don't go away. back with journalist and 90s bitch author Allison Yarrow. And y'all, she's got one more bitch category to tell us about. But first, Caroline, we've got to make a detour and explain a little bit about the sexist soup that all these bitches were swimming in. Like, I think it's pretty clear by now that the 90s was a contradictory decade when it came to women, because you have both girl power, but also all this bitch backlash. Right. And Allison says that there was one key ingredient in that sexist soup. Bitchification was able to thrive in the 90s because of a very unique and profound media revolution, the 24-hour news cycle. So during and after the Persian Gulf War, there was this new infrastructure for storytelling that allowed the networks to tell the story of the war and to build an insatiable audience that could watch it all the time. And many of them soon realized that it was far cheaper and more desirable even to cover Hollywood and politics and scandal than it was to cover war. It was this relentless, around-the-clock, all-the-time story. X-rated and extraordinary. That's the way it's been all day long, with millions glued to their television. The network bosses couldn't have counter-programmed the soaps with a more gripping daytime drama. With charges of sex, lies, and audio tapes. That's why we remember the bitchification of 90s women. That's why their stories are just lodged in our consciousness. It's because we watched their stories for days and weeks and months and sometimes years. And that was really new at the time. And we still haven't fully come to terms with how influential that was and how that shaped all of our lives and understanding of these women and ourselves. There's no better slash worse example of the power of the 24-hour news cycle to bitchify a woman than what happened with Monica Lewinsky. November 15th, 1995. And that day, you found yourself alone with Bill Clinton in the chief of staff's office, and you lifted the back of your jacket and you showed the president of the United States your thong <sighs> underwear. Where did you get the nerve? I mean, who does that? <laughs> Well, when I first found myself alone with him, I was, um, I was very nervous and uh, we were having a small talk. And I remember thinking to myself, 
okay, well, this is it. If, if this is going to happen, I mean, maybe you should let him know you're interested. So I, so I blurted out, you know, I have a crush on you. <laughs> and he kissed you? Yes. What'd you think? He's a good kisser. <laughs> This 1999 interview between Barbara Walters and Monica Lewinsky is still one of the most watched TV interviews ever. Yeah, for comparison, more than three times as many people tuned into it compared to Anderson Cooper's sit-down with Stormy Daniels. And Caroline, I totally remember that Barbara-Monica interview. Like, I wasn't allowed to watch it because my parents were totally scandalized by anything in the Clinton orbit. But Monica Lewinsky was practically all anyone was talking about. And revisiting now the way she was openly slut-shamed, fat-shamed, and vilified in the media, and really across the political spectrum— is kind of astounding. And Kristen, the vitriol spewed at Monica wasn't lost on young Allison either. We looked at someone like Monica Lewinsky and saw a woman, a young woman who was ambitious and bright and had a really, you know, covetable internship at the White House who was being called a slut on, you know, mainstream TV news and in magazines. And so I think many of us, myself included, looked at her and said, what, what will happen to us if we behave in ways that are similar to the ways that she behaved? This whole cautionary tale of Monica Lewinsky falls squarely into our final bitch category, the villain slash victim. So these are women who are making headlines for violent and or sex-related events, women who are in reality victims but get portrayed in the media as the villains. And so many of the heavy hitters from the 90s fall into this category. Anita Hill, Lorena Bobbitt. And the frankly unsurprising thing is this trope also shows up in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Film after film hit theaters with a leading woman who was sexy, deranged, and not taking no for an answer. And she was Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. And Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. I have nothing to hide. And Demi Moore in Disclosure. Oh, don't tell me you're scared of me. And the through line for all of these characters is that they were manipulative and vindictive and potentially violent or actually violent, and they were hypersexual. So you saw these, these women, and they were often, you know, pursuing male attention. They were looking for sex with powerful men. And if anyone got in their way, they were going to get cut. There was another term for women like this that was used at the time to talk about not only these fictional characters, but also women like Monica Lewinsky and other real-life villain victims making news. That word? Erotomaniac. Colloquially known as lovesickness, erotomania also made it into the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. You know, the book mental health providers use for diagnosis. So, okay, I had never even heard the term erotomania before... I got a hold of your book. So can you tell us what erotomania is and, like, how was that term being thrown around? Erotomania is a delusion, a rare delusion disorder that really only applies to women suspiciously. It's when women are perceived to be um, obsessed with 
a man in an erotic way. And usually this man is someone who has more power or stature or money than the woman does. And so she is perceived to be kind of pursuing him for sex. But in the 90s, really around the time that the film Fatal Attraction came out, erotomania began to sort of make its way from, you know, psychology, this rare disorder, into the kind of mainstream consciousness. Because erotomania was then also called fatal attraction type. And so you began to see women who made the news who appeared to threaten powerful men with their sexuality accused of being erotomaniacs, even though they had no real medical diagnosis. Yeah, it sounds just like it's another way to call a woman a bitch. It's another way to dismiss women. But this time, they're not just some, you know, bitch who's maybe shrill and cold-hearted. She's, like, over-sexualized and pathologized. She's a psycho bitch. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But what it did, it had this way of turning victims into perpetrators and perpetrators into victims. For instance, Monica Lewinsky's lawyer believes she was a certified erotomaniac who was suffering from an obsessive schoolgirl fantasy with the president. But before pathologizing Monica, erotomania came for Anita Hill. A moment when the term erotomania and erotomaniac um, sort of saturated the consciousness was in 1992. One during the Anita Hill hearings, um, when Clarence Thomas was nominated to the Supreme Court, and one of his former employees, Anita Hill, charged him with sexual harassment, um, she was called an erotomaniac. And the Senate Judiciary Committee actually engaged a psychologist who, his name was Park Dietz. He was a very popular psychologist at the time. And he was the one who sort of suggested that Hill was an erotomaniac, that perhaps um, she had pursued Clarence Thomas sexually or she was interested in him, you know, sexually, and he was not interested in her. And then later, Clarence Thomas's wife even wrote in People magazine that she thought Anita Hill was a fatal assistant, like the kind of fatal attraction type, but um, but her husband's assistant. Is this where we then get the um, infamous description of Anita Hill, I believe penned by uh, David Brock, of a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty? I think it's certainly derivative from erotomaniac. Sexual harassment isn't about sex, but because Anita Hill was charging sexual harassment, she was accused of erotomania. And I think it's really interesting, you know, erotomania, why is it such a a gender diagnosis? You know, there are plenty of delusions, disorders, but why does it sort of have to center around a woman's relationship to a man and why can't it why can't men be diagnosed with erotomania but the definition only applies to women do you feel that lorena bobbitt fits into the erotomaniac narrative yeah lorena bobbitt made the news for cutting off her husband's penis and throwing it out of a car window she's charged with maliciously wounding her husband john by cutting off his penis last june 
Lorena Bobbitt claims constant physical and mental abuse by her husband drove her to an irrational impulse to harm him. At this morning, As you can imagine, the story really centered on the penis. It became a story about how men should fear women because women were actually perpetrators of violence. And if Lorena Bobbitt can do this to John Bobbitt, you know, you better sleep with, like, the covers really tight over your head at night or your wife's going to come in with a knife and do something similar. That was the that was a line of reasoning that you saw often in the 90s in response to that story. What Lorena's story really was was a story about domestic violence and marital rape, which many folks at the time didn't even think existed. The penis chopping happened after she had endured six years of serial abuse. In 1994, a Virginia jury acquitted Lorena Bobbitt, but it's taken 25 years and a new Amazon documentary series for her narrative to be debitchified and publicly redeemed. So what do you think about Lorena Bobbitt kind of reemerging in um, our kind of cultural awareness today? Any time that women from the 90s can have an opportunity to return now and be part of telling their own stories instead of having their stories just told for them and told in a sexist, racist way and told wrong, um, it's absolutely progress. And Lorena Bobbitt is absolutely, I mean, I had lunch with her and she's just a fascinating, warm, articulate person. And we really did not understand the contours and depths of her story in the 1990s. I mean, her story is an immigrant story. You know, one of the ways that her husband supposedly tortured her is by threatening to get her deported. And she didn't know that she didn't know whether or not he could actually do that. And she's she's so amazing because she's really out there sort of talking about all of these issues now. And she even is an advocate for domestic violence victims. And she's using her platform to, you know, to reach people and to teach about domestic violence. Why now? Why? I mean, aside from some sort of <laughs> cultural 90s revival, like, why now? Why are we talking about and redeeming women like Lorena Bobbitt and Monica Lewinsky? Because we are just beginning to see how poorly they were treated in the 1990s. And I still believe that we're doing too much sort of individual redeeming and not enough looking at all of these stories together. I mean, it's the same tropes over and over again. And the, the similarities are just so shocking that we have to look at all of these stories together to have a better sense of the narrative of sexism and misogyny that shaped the 90s and that really still shapes our present moment. Thank you, uh, Chairman Grassley and rank Ranking Member Feinstein, members of the committee. My name is Christine Blasey Ford. More on our present moment when we come back. I am here today not because I want to be. I am terrified. I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school. We're back. And that was Dr. Christine Blasey Ford testifying just last year to the Senate Judiciary Committee about her alleged assault at the hands of now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. 
And it made us curious what watching those hearings must have felt like for our guest, Allison Yarrow, who had just spent the past few years investigating all that bitchification of Anita Hill. It was so dispiriting. And I think it was it was really upsetting to kind of have to relive this through Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford um, when we had really already done this in 1991. But really, people had forgotten. And so for them, I think, you know, it was one of those moments where, you know, you think you think gender parity exists or perhaps, you know, sexism doesn't. And it's a real moment of of reckoning and of sadness that there is sort of a deep sexism and misogyny that still shapes our lives and our reality. But for Allison, all this 90s bitch deja vu started well before the Kavanaugh hearings. I was writing the book in tandem with Hillary Clinton running for the presidency in, you know, 2015, 2016. And so in many ways, as I was doing this research and finding all of these interesting new narratives, I was thinking to myself, no one is going to think that we need a history of 90s sexism now because Hillary Clinton is going to become the president of the United States and gender parity is going to be achieved. So it's going to erase sort of all of the history of sexism. Who is going to need to understand this? And then when she lost, and it was clear that she lost because of, you know, a number of factors, but one of them was certainly a rival campaign of crude sexism, it became even more important to me to get this history right and to share it as widely as possible. And Caroline, this is exactly the kind of history that we do need to have in our sightlines and in the mainstream consciousness as much as possible as the next election approaches. It's a really interesting political moment for our country as we gear up for the 2020 election. And the ways that the six women who have presented themselves as potential presidential candidates are being treated really echo the way that Hillary Clinton was treated in 2016 and in 2008. There's still this sort of likability gap, you know, this this sort of amorphous idea that women should be likable if they're to be elected. It still applies today to Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and the women who are out on the trail. One story that comes to mind is uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar alleging that she is, you know, a horrible boss to work for. And the response to it, I've heard, has been both, that's totally sexist, men are not covered this way, and hey, you know what, like how you treat your employees matters and, you know, women should not simply throw down the sexism card uh, to, you know, deflect what could be valid criticism. How do you strike that balance between not wanting to rebitchify women <laughs> and also leaving room for valid criticism of women? That's a really good question, because just because sexism exists, it doesn't mean that women are perfect or should be treated as such or held to different standards. But we have to recognize that when a story comes out about a politician like Amy Klobuchar treating her staff poorly, 
we haven't, you're right, seen other stories about male politicians treating their staffs poorly. And so when that's the case, when we can see that women are being covered differently than men, maybe this is just the 2019 version of writing about women's clothes and hair and makeup and not writing about men's appearance on the campaign trail. We now know that that's incredibly sexist. Uh, We didn't know that so much in 2008. It sort of had to be pointed out, and we had to learn that then. We know it now. Maybe this is a new version of that. When's the last time someone called you a bitch that you're aware of? (laughs) (laughs) At a book event. Uh, Yeah, so I was was doing a book signing, and— uh, it was it was a rough one. I mean, there were just there were there were a lot of people who really weren't on board with what I was trying to communicate with this book. They didn't really believe sort of the bitchification premise. They really did believe things like Monica Lewinsky is to blame and Anita Hill pursued Clarence Thomas sexually and was denied. And these were the kinds of lines of arguments that I was hearing. Um, and yeah, there was just there was an older gentleman, an older white gentleman who came over and picked up the book and looked at it and was like, what is this? This is like, are you writing about yourself? You know, kind of that, that I, I can't remember exactly, but it was definitely like he was, it was like, oh man, <laughs> he's actually calling me a bitch. Damn. Yeah, we're not quite there yet, are we? Like in terms of, I mean, God, anytime either A, Monica Lewinsky tweets or B, Monica Lewinsky's name comes up at all in any capacity on Twitter, It is still the complete split between people who are glad that she is resurfacing, talking about victims' rights and bullying, and people who say she needs to sit down and shut up because she was that temptress back in the 90s. She is such a litmus test. I've done probably 30 book events, and every single event there's at least— one person who raises their hand and says, you know, I'm I'm totally on board with everything you're saying, except I don't believe that Monica Lewinsky is a victim, and I'm never going to believe that she was a victim. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned at that particular book signing how, uh, you know, some of the folks were just kind of not getting it. Um, Just in general, how has the book been received? Coming on the heels of the Me Too movement and hashtag Me Too, people, women, are looking for ways to explain and understand the sexism that they've experienced in their lives. And it can be helpful to look at a history that tells a story of sexism and to plug into that and say, these are also ways that I've experienced sexism in my life. So, Caroline, what have we learned from this feminist 90s nostalgia trip with Allison? Well, A, (laughs) don't get blinded by girl power. There's probably some more insidious stuff underneath the surface. And B, don't take any gender progress for granted. Yeah, I mean, the need to continually smash the patriarchy is so real, you know, and and we saw this, too, in the backstory of Allison writing 90s Bitch, because similar to how coming into the 90s, people assumed it was going to be the decade of women leading up to the 2016 presidential election. Allison, like a lot of us, was assuming that we were simply on the cusp of making this gender progressive move to finally elect our first female president. And clearly, when we start taking equality for granted, 
we're just setting ourselves up to discover how much more progress we still need to make. So to learn more about 90s bitches, don't forget to pick up Allison's book, 90s Bitch, Media, Culture, and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality. You can get it online or anywhere in stores right now. In the meantime, tell us, has your perception of 90s bitches changed over the past, like, well, ever since the 90s? (laughs) What does all that bitchification tell you about sexism and power dynamics today? And, And does it make you think any differently about this whole 90s revival we're living through. Email us at hello at unladylike.co or you can hit us up on the socials at unladylike media or join the convo in our Facebook group. And don't forget to stop by our website unladylike.co to check out our sources, sign up for our weekly newsletter and pick up a copy of our book, Unladylike, a field guide to smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. And Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlett Mast. And we are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week, we're talking to a couple ladies who aren't afraid to toot their own horn. The chief doctor came and and afterwards and he said well why are you here it looks to me like you're some sort of uh elite athlete i said well actually i'm a trombone player don't miss it make sure that y'all are subscribed to unladylike in stitcher spotify apple podcast or honestly just wherever you like to listen and remember got a problem get unladylike The 80s was sort of promising us in these individual women who had received such great success that gender equality was coming. And we believed that. And then the 90s really just dashed that dream. At least we got the Spice Girls. We did. (laughs) Stitcher. 